Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event originally occurred at the AWP conference in Washington, D.C. on February 5th, 2011. The recording features Sally Dawdoff, Frank Bedard, Vijay Shashadri, and Kevin Young. Now you will hear Sally Dawadoff provide introductions. Hi, welcome. In his book, Confederates in the Attic, Tony Horwitz tells a story of a young man who was murdered in Tennessee for an incident involving the Confederate flag. The Confederate flag murder. And that happened in 1995. What the victim's father said was, they say that war ended a long time ago, but around here, it's like it's still going on. For those devoted to or offended by the Confederate flag, in a sense, it's like it's still going on. But for many more Americans, in different ways, it is. When the poet Alan Tate, who was born 34 years after the Civil War ended, sat down to compose his seminal ode to the Confederate dead, for him it was a potent event. When Tate's friend Robert Lowell accepted a request to read a poem at the Boston Arts Festival in 1960, for him the Civil War was a live and painful issue. And the writers before us today, Frank Bedart, Vijay Shishadri, and Kevin Young, are here because for each of them, in some way, it's still going on. They aren't done with the war, or it isn't done with them. It goes without saying that the Civil War was consequential enough for continued mourning and attention. Four years, nearly three quarters of a million dead. And needless to say, the central difficulty has not been resolved. Still, the attention from contemporary poets is notable. What is it about this war? Perhaps these writers sought the Civil War as a way to muse upon their country's ills, as Melville put it in a wartime poem. Edward Hirsch said of Tate's ode, the poem universalizes from the situation of the South in the middle and late 20s to the larger condition of the modern world, and Tate found his world chaotic and degenerate. Or perhaps they have written to excoriate their country's ills. As Lowell wrote to A. Alvarez when the book For the Union Dead was coming out in 1964, American poets are now free to say what we want to, and somehow what we want to say is the confusion and sadness and incoherence of the human condition. It may be a more miserable time, more than others, with the world liable to blow up. Perhaps our panelists agree with Edmund Wilson, who wrote in the same period, that if we would truly understand at the present time the kind of role that our own country is playing, we must go back and try to see objectively what our tendencies and our practice have been in the past. Wilson's conclusion was, America devours as much as we can like a sea slug of vigorous veracity. As J.D. McClatchy has suggested, if our best poets argue with history, it is the better to provide the moralities of vision. Or perhaps the war gives them a way to talk about where they themselves stand. What has become of the Civil War and what has become of us? Today, 150 years and two months before the war began, we will hear five texts, four poems, and a prose memoir that call it back. And we'll see an ongoing engagement with the event itself and with its myriad meanings, public, political, historical, cultural, moral, familial, personal. The past isn't really a foreign country, as L.P. Hartley said, not when it happened right here, not when, with persistence both baffling and understandable, it is still going on. So we're going to hear five readings and then a discussion, and then toward the end we'll take some questions from you if you have any. Let me introduce the writers. For those of you who aren't familiar, I'll say a couple of words about Alan Tate and Robert Lowell. Though it's hard to say just a couple of words about them, especially Lowell. Uh, we're going to hear 
a work by each of them, and then we'll hear a work from each of the poets here. Alan Tate, American, 1899 to 1979, a Kentucky-born poet, a founding editor of The Fugitive and a member of The Fugitives, who are remembered mainly for two causes, traditionally formal poetry and nostalgia for the agrarian South. Robert Lowell referred to Tate's killing eloquence, and he said, the only one that really got deeply and closely under my skin was Alan Tate. Robert Lowell, 1917 to 1977, he's remembered, of course, as a confessional poet, but his writing ranged widely, both formally and in content. He moved through his decades with allegiance to traditionally formal poems, then to a confessional mode, then to more public poetry. I am learning to live in history, he once said. And in an essay written at the end of his life, Lowell wrote that, looking over my selected poems about 30 years of writing, my impression is that the thread that strings it together is my autobiography. How much to tell, of course, was an argument between Lowell and Tate. Now the poets before us. Frank Bedart is a poet and editor whose most recent collection of poems, collections of poems, are watching the Spring Festival and Stardust, both National Book Awards finalists. His honors include the Wallace Stevens Award, the Morton Dowen Zabel Award, the Shelley Award, and the Bollingen Prize in American Poetry. Bedart co-edited and introduced Robert Lowell's collected poems. He teaches in the English department at Wellesley. Vijay Shishadri is a poet and essayist. His poetry collections are Wild Kingdom and The Long Meadow. The latter won the James Lachlan Prize. Other honors include the McDowell Colony's Fellowship for Distinguished Poetic Achievement. Shishadri reviews books for The New Yorker, The New York Times Book Review at all, and directs the graduate program in creative nonfiction at Sarah Lawrence. Finally, Kevin Young is the author of seven books of poetry, including Dear Darkness and Ardency, recently published. Young is also the editor of five anthologies, most recently The Art of Losing, Poems of Grief and Healing. He is Atticus Haygood Professor of Poetry and Curator of Literary Collections and the Raymond Donowski Poetry Library at Emory University. We will begin with a recording of Alan Tate's ode read by the author. Ode to the Confederate Dead. Row after row with strict impunity. The headstones yield their names to the element. The wind whirs without recollection. In the riven troughs, the splayed leaves pile up. Of nature, the casual sacrament to the seasonal eternity of death. Then, driven by the fierce scrutiny of heaven to their election in the vast breath, they suff the rumor of mortality. Autumn is desolation in the plot of a thousand acres where these memories grow from the inexhaustible bodies that are not dead, but feed the grass row after rich row. Think of the autumns that have come and gone, ambitious November with the humors of the year, with a particular zeal for every slab, staining the uncomfortable angels that rot on the slabs, a wing chipped here, an arm there. The brute curiosity of an angel's stare turns you, like them, to stone, transforms the heaving air, till plunged to a heavier world below. You shift your sea space blindly, heaving, turning, like the blind crab. Dazed by the wind, only the wind, the leaves flying, plunge. You know who have waited by the wall, the twilight certainty of an animal, those midnight restitutions of the blood you know, the immitigable pines, the smoky freeze of the sky, the sudden call. You know the rage, the cold pool left by the mounting flood of muted Zeno, and Parmenides. You who have waited for the angry resolution of those desires that should be yours tomorrow. You know the unimportant shrift of death and praise the vision and praise the arrogant circumstance of those who fall rank upon rank hurried beyond decision. Here by the sagging gate, stopped by the wall. C. 
seeing, seeing only the leaves flying, plunge and expire. Turn your eyes to the immoderate past. Turn to the inscrutable infantry rising demons out of the earth. They will not last. Stonewall, Stonewall and the sunken fields of hemp. Shiloh, Antietam, Malvern Hill, Bull Run. Lost in that orient of the thick and fast, you will curse the setting sun. Cursing only the leaves crying like an old man in a storm. You hear the shout. The crazy hemlocks point with troubled fingers to the silence which smothers you, a mummy, in time. The hound bitch, toothless and dying, in a musty cellar hears the wind only. Now that the salt of their blood stiffens the saltier oblivion of the sea, seals the malignant purity of the flood, what shall we who count our days and bow our heads with a commemorial woe in the ribboned coats of grim felicity? What shall we say of the bones unclean whose virtuous anonymity will grow? The ragged arms, the ragged heads and eyes lost in these acres of the insane green. The gray lean spiders come, they come and go. In the tangle of willows without light, the singular screech owl's tight invisible lyric seeds the mind with the furious murmur of their chivalry. We shall say only the leaves flying, plunge and expire. We shall say only the leaves whispering in the improbable mist of nightfall that flies on multiple wings. Night is the beginning and the end, and in between the ends of distraction waits mute speculation, the patient curse that stones the eyes, or like the jaguar leaps for his own image in a jungle pool, his victim. What shall we say who have knowledge carried to the heart? Shall we take the act to the grave? Shall we more hopeful set up the grave in the house, the ravenous grave? Leave now the shut gate and the decomposing wall. The gentle serpent, green in the mulberry bush, riots with his tongue through the hush, sentinel of the grave who counts us all. Next, we will hear Robert Lowell's For the Union Dead, read by Lowell's editor, the poet Frank Bedart. Uh, there's an epigraph to the uh, Lowell poem, and it is the um, Latin epigraph that is uh, uh, affixed to the memorial by St. Gaudens that this poem is about. Um, the original says, he leaves all behind to protect or preserve or save the state. And Lowell changed he to they, they leave all behind to protect the state. For the Union Dead. Relinquunt omnia servare rem publicam. The old South Boston Aquarium stands in a Sahara of snow now. Its broken windows are boarded the bronze weather vane cod has lost half its scales. The airy tanks are dry. Once my nose crawled like a snail on the glass. My hand tingled to burst the bubbles drifting from the noses of the cowed, compliant fish. My hand draws back. I often sigh still for the dark downward and vegetating kingdom of the fish and reptile. One morning last March, I pressed against the new barbed and galvanized fence on the Boston Common. Behind their caged yellow dinosaur steam shovels were grunting as they cropped up tons of mush and grass to gouge their underworld garage. Parking spaces luxuriate like civic sand piles in the heart of Boston. 
A girdle of orange Puritan pumpkin colored girders braces the tingling state house, shaking over the excavations. As it faces Colonel Shaw and his bell-cheeked Negro infantry on St. Gordon's shaking Civil War relief, propped by a plank splint against the garage's earthquake. Two months after marching through Boston, half the regiment was dead. At the dedication, William James could almost hear the bronze Negroes breathe. Their monument sticks like a fishbone in the city's throat. Its kernel is as lean as a compass needle. He has an angry, wren-like vigilance, a greyhound's gentle tautness. He seems to wince at pleasure and suffocate for privacy. He is out of bounds now. He rejoices in man's lovely, peculiar power to choose life and die. When he leads his black soldiers to death, he cannot bend his back. On a thousand small-town New England greens, the old white churches hold their air of sparse, sincere rebellion. Frayed flags quilt the graveyards of the Grand Army of the Republic. The stone statues of the abstract Union soldier grow slimmer and younger each year. Wasp-waisted, they doze over muskets and muse through their sideburns. Shaw's father wanted no monument except the ditch where his son's body was thrown and lost with his niggers. The ditch is nearer. There are no statues for the last war here. On Boylston Street, a commercial photograph shows Hiroshima boiling over a Mosler safe, the rock of ages that survived the blast. Space is nearer. When I crouch to my television set, the drained faces of Negro school children rise like balloons. Colonel Shaw is riding on his bubble. He waits for the blessed break. The aquarium is gone. Everywhere giant finned cars nose forward like fish. A savage servility slides by on Greece. Now the poet Vijay Shashadri will read an excerpt from his memoir, The Nature of the Chemical Bond. Uh, I unfortunately have to talk a little to explain what I'm reading, I think all the other poems we're hearing are uh, acts of memorialization. This is an excerpt about, it's a memorialization of the act of memorialization. So it's kind of one step removed from the lyric gestures you've heard so far and we'll hear again. And uh, it's, really a part of a piece that's about my father and when you know we came here my father came here in 1955 and uh, to get his PhD in physical chemistry which is why the piece is called the nature of the chemical bond and uh, then he came back to India and retrieved us in 59 and we moved to Canada and we were there for two years where he was a postdoctoral fellow at the National Research Council and then he got a uh, job at Ohio State, and we moved to Columbus, Ohio, and uh, he developed through the course of those early years in Ohio a fascination with the Civil War, and, you know, it seems more improbable than it actually is, because when we got to Columbus, it was the 100th anniversary, and there was a lot, you know, I realized looking back that 
There was a lot of publication. There was a lot of activity. And my father is, and very much was so more even then, a product of a very positivist third world attitude. And po I mean positivist in two senses, in terms of uh, logical positivism. Which, which means that he was really committed to empiricism, but also positive in the most more general sense in that he thought that there was kind of uh, a way in which to engage the world that was ahistorical, that we were kind of post-historical. And that was kind of the belief of Indian intellectuals and third world intellectuals from Africa, from Asia, of his generation. And they were all kind of... They thought that science was going to lead them out of the past and out of history. And, you know, and so I always thought it was very strange as a child that I was being dragged to Civil War battlefields. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I didn't think it was that strange. I thought, you know, oh, yeah, everybody goes to Civil War battlefields. And I hated it. And the first part of the piece is about how much I hated being in these cars with my sister throwing up in the back. And, you know, as we were on our way to Antietam or, you know, the wilderness or you know Shiloh and, and uh, but subsequently I realized that it was really sort of coherent and at the time when the Bush administration was contemplating invading Iraq and was in fact planning to invade Iraq this was in 19 of uh, 2003 I sort of said oh wow that's really you know this really fits into something and it fit into something for me because I started looking at the Civil War and remembering these things, and uh, it fit into a kind of vision of violence. And the Civil War, whatever else it is, is preeminently, you know, the most violent episode in American history. I mean, you know, shocking in its violence. So I'm going to read this, and I apologize ahead of time for taking more time than, you know, all of this, you know, great poetry. But... Uh, there was no way I could excerpt it in such a way that it was smaller. It's just one page, but... Uh, and before the point at which I'm reading, I discuss my father's, the kind of science he does, and his obsession with it. And, uh, and, uh, and then this section starts. When he took a break, he turned to the Great Rebellion a socialist of the mild Fabian Congress Party variety. Nehru and the vegetarian George Bernard Shaw were among our household gods. He might, if asked, have described the war as a socialist war, prosecuted, whatever the concomitant or efficient reasons, to eliminate capitalism's most vicious practice, chattel slavery. No one was around to ask him, though, except me, and I couldn't have framed such a question. So he was required to confess nothing. I can't remember his ever telling me anything about the Civil War that carried the faintest odor of morality or politics or interpretation. He seemed to accept unquestioningly the then and still prevalent notion of the war by which the imperatives of the North were balanced by the valor and passion and superior skillfulness of the underdog South, lifting the conflict beyond partisanship, beyond good and evil, clarifying it until it became a smooth, simple drama whose meaning was contained deep within itself. He fell in step with the thinking about the war that saw motives as local and the deeper causality subsumed by tactics, strategy, movement, battle lines, salience and bridgeheads, preponderant forces and materiel, clemencies and inclemencies of weather, and chaotic mischances and coincidences. In the books he read, in the brochures he collected, there was no interest in justification, no question of right or wrong. Everyone was forgiven in the end except that small gallery of characters that, that includes Val Landingham, Quantrill, J and John Wilkes Booth. This was perfect for him. It gave scope to his instinctive empiricism and his discomfort with generalities, which were suspicious with hidden and untenable assumptions. The Civil War was as fundamental, as immutable as the submolecular realm, a modernist war made for the modernist he was then and still is, 
as clear and impenetrable as a line by Wallace Stevens or a Calder Mobile. It referred to nothing but itself. Wrapped in its structures, though, was a human heroism pure and appalling and desperate. So pure and appalling and desperate that it, too, seems immutable. This was something my father understood. These were the desperate frequencies that set his atomic particles vibrating. He had been orphaned of his father at an early age in a cholera epidemic that almost took him away at the same time. He'd also survived smallpox. His family had been thrown into poverty and a humiliating dependency. They hadn't experienced the most terrible Indian destitution, but India has many destitutions, and they always heard one or another coughing and shuffling outside their door. His education had been financed entirely by the scholarships and fellowships available in what was then the princely state of Mysore, which may have been the most advanced of the Indian princely states in the decades before independence, and in the world beyond. If the massive silence that lies at the center of his psyche is any indication, his character had not only been defined but pretty much exhausted by frugality, anxiety, and constant labor. His one chance, his one grace, had been science. He once said to me, in wonder rather than bitterness, if I hadn't found science, I would have been nothing. Hundreds of thousands of men throwing themselves against the merciless fire of a technology that had left the tactics of their officers far behind. The desperation. Fundamental and astounding, Lincoln called it meaning that even he had no words. The self moves beyond dread and terror and confronts its essential poverty and nakedness and isolation. This my father understood too well and too immediately. The conflict was vivid to his moody, wordless fatalism. His sense, so strange in the bountiful middle America of the early 60s, that all choices narrowed to one choice which wasn't a choice at all, but was construed as such by our incorrigible gift for deceiving ourselves into thinking we're free. And so, the following, suitably edited to disguise their violence, became the bedside anecdotes of my childhood's middle years. In the twilight of early May, a mistaken fusillade from his own men cuts down Stonewall Jackson, out scouting enemy lines. Lee, my father says, will miss him at Gettysburg. The citizens of Cherbourg come down to the Keys to watch the Alabama and the Kursarge trading broadsides in the harbor. Eventually, my father says, the captain of the Alabama will strike his colors and then throw himself overboard. Forrest's cavalry harasses the flanks, exploding out of the woods and forcing the Union soldiers to scatter across the deadfall in the scrub. In one half hour, after a blundering delay by his generals, Grant loses 7,000 men, dead or maimed. Hello, I'm Kevin. Um, I want to thank Sally so much for organizing this um, and um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm going to read my poem which is called For the Confederate Dead. Um, I suppose you can see by the title uh, that's arguing both with history and with um, poetry. Um, specifically Robert Lowell who I'm sort of always arguing with in some way. Um, uh, and uh, what else to say about it? Um, I d had a book by this title, which I had always had this title um, after I wrote the poem. I thought this is going to be the name of the book, and uh, I was. It was so hard to write a Confederate, de you know, a poem saying that. Um, and I called up my publisher and said, I don't know if I can do it. I mean, I'm going to get letters from reenactors. You know, um, they're going to find out I'm black. I, you know, it was like a whole. So I made them put some black people on the cover. And interestingly, I think people understood that the, in the, at least the whole book, I don't know if it's in the poem specifically, 
that I was interested in the idea of confederate in its sort of original meaning, an ally, um, a friend. So this poem is for, for the Confederate dead. It has a epigraph from Whitman. I go with the team also. For the Confederate dead. These are the last days, my television says. Tornadoes, more rain, overcast, a chance of sun, but I do not trust weathermen, never have. In my fridge, only the milk makes sense, expires. No one, much less my parents, can tell me why my middle name is Lowell. And from my table, across from the Confederate monument to the dead, that pale finger bone, a plaque declares war not civil or between the states, but for Southern independence. In this cafe, below sea and eye level, a mural runs the wall, flaking, a plantation scene most do not see. It's too much around the knees, height of a child. In its fields, Negroes bend to pick the endless white. In livery, a few drive carriages like slaves, whipping the horses, faces blank and peeling. The old hotel lobby this once was no longer welcomes guests. Maroon ledger, bellboys gone, but for this. Like an inheritance, the owner found it, stripping hundred years, at least, of paint and plaster. More leaves each day. In my movie, there are no horses, no heroes, only draftees fleeing into the pines, some few who survive, gravely wounded, lying burrowed beneath the dead, silent until the enemy bayonets what is believed to be the last of the breathing. It is getting later. We prepare for wars no longer there. The weather, inevitable, Unusual, more this time of year than anyone ever seed. The earth shudders, the air. If I did not know better, I would think we were living all along a fault. How late it has gotten. Forget the weatherman whose maps move, blink, but stay crossed with lines none have seen. Race instead against the almost rain, digging beside the monument, that giant anchor, till we strike water, sweat fighting the sleepwalking air. And finally, Frank Bedart reading his poem, To the Republic. To the Republic. Uh, this is, poem is dated 2005. To the Republic. I dreamt I saw a caravan of the dead start out again from Gettysburg. Close packed, upright in rows on rail car flatbeds in the sun. They soon will stink. Victor and vanquished shoved together Dirt had bleached the blue and gray, one color. Risen again from Gettysburg, as if the state were shelter crawled to through blood. Risen disconsolate that we now ruin the great work of time. They roll in outrage across America. You betray us, is blazoned across each chest. To each eye as they pass, you betray us. Assaulted by the impotent dead, I say it's their misfortune and none of my own. I dreamt I saw a caravan of the dead move on wheels touching rails without sound. 
to each eye as they pass. You betray us. Lowell said once that he'd always wanted to write a Civil War poem. It's a question for each of you. Did you, for you, Vijay, today will make that poem mean prose memoir? You know, the thing about that memoir was that uh, I never really wanted to write it even though I knew it was a topic because I always saw the Civil War as being confusing because I got into such detail before I could see the big picture, before I could see the kind of lyric moment that it was or strive toward that lyric moment. And, uh, and when I was writing it, what I found was I was engulfed by the factuality of the war. And there's a tremendous factuality to the war because there's so much, you know, great historical writing about the war. I mean, just, and there's so much fiction about it. it you know, and the war was memorialized as soon as it ended, you know, at Appomattox Courthouse. The, the officers after Lee and Grant signed the terms of the surrender you know, started taking away all the furniture and stuff like that. Huh. So the act of memorial, you know, to keep as relics, so the act of memorialization was sort of, you know, it's almost, you know, it begins, you know, even, you know, begins almost with the war. And so, uh, and I didn't know how to do, I didn't know what to do with all that interpretation that existed and all of those sort of, uh, attitudes towards the war, but, you know, as Frank's poem kind of makes clear, if you really delve into the history of the Civil War, and as, uh, you know, I went back and read a lot of stuff before I wrote the memoir, I sort of felt like, God, this is just about killing, you know? I mean, you know, you almost feel about Whitman, I mean, that, well, when Whitman wrote the epigraph that uh, Kevin uses, he kind of understood death as this sort of transcendental fact, you know, it fit into, but when he went to the Civil War and saw what death really was, it sort of shocked him, and you know, he was never the poet he was after the war that he was before the war, so uh, I just, you know, it was a subject I just didn't want to get close to at all, simply because it's just all, for me, it's just, an epic of death. I mean, it's just amazing. It's just, I mean, it's just horrifying. It's horrifying. It's, you know, the First World War is, you know, so, no, I never wanted to write a Civil War poem, and <laughs> I never will write a Civil War poem. Uh, I love that. That was good words. Um, I don't know if I wanted to. Um, I think the idea of the memorialization that uh, Jay mentioned is really was more what I was interested in in some weird way. Um, how do you write about memory, or how do you remember a thing that is painful to remember, but also, you know, it's a sort of uh, anchor, as I say in the poem. Uh, and quite literally, just in daily life, you pass these giant monuments, and you wonder about them. Uh, this was in Athens, Georgia, where the, there's literally that mural. Um, in a cafe, um, and um, you know the problem of that, of that, he uncovered this thing, do you cover it back up? It's sort of offensive, but is it history? You know, those kinds of questions came to me as much as um, wanting to write about the war, I want to write about the memory of the war and the ways in which it's still happening, or, um, and I think Frank's poem imagines that so viscerally um, and brings it to life as a present-day occurrence. Um, and I think it's the dailiness of it that I want to get at, not the, um, f you know, um, distant thing. Um, but also, to how do you praise a thing that you're unsure of? That was also, for me, part of the poem. Um, I think... You know, one would like to have something to say about everything important, uh, but um, uh, I certainly never felt I had anything to say that was uh, 
some, any, com any insight that was commensurate to um, either the great poems that had been written or, um, or, or the event itself. And um, I loved Lowell's poem. Certainly not my favorite Lowell, but I thought it was a great poem. I do think it's a great poem. Um, I've never liked the Alan Tate poem. Um, uh, um, to me, it's a, it's a poem full of um, um, uh, ways of avoiding actually confronting um, uh, the, the fact of the war and what the war was about. And um, uh, it's what El uh, Adrian Rich would call bullshit rhetoric a lot of the time. Uh, there are great phrases, but then that makes it all the more dangerous and in a way horrible. Um, uh, uh, but I feel very ambivalent about Tate, uh, uh, his writing altogether. Uh, and it seemed to me amazing and wonderful that Lowell could um, uh, write a poem that, that was not false um, uh, and authentic uh, that partly sprang from uh, the Tate poem. And um, uh, at the same time, as I say, I f didn't feel I had anything commensurate to say. Uh, nor do I f now feel that I have anything commensurate to say. But I had a dream, and it was a dream where I saw these figures. Now, that doesn't necessarily make it a, 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 a proper subject for a poem. But um, I was really quite... Uh, um, overwhelmed by seeing these figures sort of ripped out of the ground and put on these flatbeds, and um, and that both sides of the war were had become the same side. And um, I don't have not dated most of my poems, but 2005 I dated this poem because it, to my mind, it is really about the world created by the Bush administration and the sense that uh, something catastrophic uh, had happened to America and America's place in the world. Um, and uh, if a state is partly shelter that has been crawled to through blood, many, many people have suffered and died in order to give us um, uh, the structure that we can be here today uh, and speaking out of, and and you know we don't expect people are going to come in with guns or uh, uh, and shoot us or stop us from speaking, and all the all the million things that the ways in which a state can uh, can provide an order and pattern and security in life, uh, all that had really been threatened by I think I think the incompetence and stupidity and arrogance and and uh, greed of um, the Bush years. And um, so for me, I mean, in a way, the event which this dream gave me was the two sides becoming one. The blue and gray had become one color. And they, they were accusing contemporary America. I think that theme of the, uh, the past coming back to accuse the present is a very old one is a very fundamental one. It's in the Lowell poem. Um, but I think it, um, uh, 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 it, it was central to my feeling uh, about the, um, uh, the meaning of that dream. And uh, I tried to build into the poem uh, a sense that the, you know, America has always had this very pragmatic, somewhat cruel side. Um, uh, the lines, uh, assaulted by the impotent dead, I say it's their misfortune and none of my own. Uh, that echoes uh, uh, a song called Get Along Little Dogies, where the, the cowboy says to the, uh, to the dogies, who are after all being led off to get fat in order to be sold and slaughtered, it's your misfortune, it's none of my own. And um, uh, so that element of the sort of American past and the American psyche, I wanted also to build into this, this, this figure that America was cutting in the world. You, um, I had a question. Do you think Lowell liked Tate's poem? And um, <laughs> good question. Because yeah. I think he's rewriting it to such a degree, and uh, you know the the past that he he's also accusing the past that is Tate 
which is his own personal uh, right. poetic past. I mean, he's camped on the Tate's backyard, right, in a tent. Right. Um, you know, come, sure, visit us. And then you've got a kid living in the backyard. Um, that's right. That's right. And um, <clears throat> I think that's, there's something really powerful about his uh, engaging that and rewriting. And for me, it was a daunting task to try to Absolutely. write about these uh, sort of two figures. Um, but yeah, the Tate poem, it sounds so different. I mean, hearing him read it, it just, it, I liked it less and less. I, I mean, I, Lowell, I think, was extremely ambivalent about Alan Tate. I mean, he was grateful to Tate. Tate had been um, uh, his teacher. He had learned a lot from Tate. Tate introduced his first book of poems. Um, uh, I think, you know, uh, and, and the rhetoric of Lowell's first trade book, Lord Worry's Castle, was indebted in part to Alan Tate, though I, it was certainly indebted to many more, uh, many other things, and more important things. Uh, on the other hand, I know he felt great ambivalence about Tate, and uh, both as a person and as a writer. And uh, he did not, you know, live his life uh, imitating uh, Tate's work, or or his life. Um, uh, I think Tate was, in some ways, a frightening figure to Lowell. Um, when Lowell wrote the manuscript of Life Studies. Um, he sent it to Alan Tate, uh, who had been his friend, and he sent it to T.S. Eliot, who was a friend and had edited his poems for Faber and Faber. And Eliot said, um, this is the real thing. I want to publish it. <laughs> and he did. And then the book, in fact, came out uh, uh, from Faber and Faber before it came out in America. Alan Tate told him to put it in a drawer and try to forget it, and in a couple of years, he would be ashamed of it. So, uh, you know, I, th I think he had a lot of ambivalence about, <laughs> about Tate. Yeah, right. uh, I wonder why. Is it safe to say that was mutual? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I know, I mean, for example, late in Lowell's life, uh, when he, he was working on the sonnet books, he wrote uh, uh, some sonnets about Tate and about the death of uh, 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 one of the um, twins, uh, that uh, Tate had uh, had had, and um, I think there, well, the the image of Tate in the poems is uh, is mixed, but it is certainly not in any simple way an attack on him. But Tate was tremendously upset that Lowell presumed to write a poem about the death of Tate's child, and. When I read the poem, I, it does not seem to me a transgression. Um, uh, and um, uh, but Tate was very proprietary, and it, and that somehow it was an indiscretion of Lowell to write about uh, the death of this child, which was an accident. So, um, in it, <coughs> what am I trying to say? Uh, I think their relations were rocky. Uh, I know that. He came around about life studies. He, he ended up writing, it's a magnificent book, maybe giving in, you know. And I, th I think that he, he, was very, he was very worried about what it meant. I, th I think he, he read the book and thought, crazy, you know, so I think that was part of it. Kevin, you said that in, in your poem you're arguing with history and with poetry. And, you know, something that is unique uh, about the, the group of you is that all of you are looking back to Lowell and or Tate. We see it subtly in uh, Vijay's prose memoir. Vijay, you put a prose memoir in the middle of a book of poems, as, as Lowell did. Well, I would, you know, I knew that everybody who read the book and knew the Lowell book were, was going to, they were all going to immediately remember life studies. But, you know, the impetus, you know, I, I don't know when I first read Life Studies, but I'm pretty sure I read The Sea in the Mirror by W.H. Auden before I left, read Life Studies. And I think that's where Lowell got the idea of putting a section of prose in a book of poetry. And I love the texture of The Sea in the Mirror, so it was always in my mind because of that. You know, 
writing that book really involved, from, or writing that prose memoir really involved, the way in which Lowell was involved was this, that somehow I've always been very sympathetic to the father in 91 Revere Street, you know, because he is so deconstructed in some way, you know. I mean, he is just taken apart step by step, you know, and of course it's a masterpiece of American prose, but, you know, I always come away feeling like, you know, gosh, you know, he should be a little nicer to his dad. <laughs> and, you know, and I, you know, and in some sense that was the one impetus, it, you know, to the extent that it's about fathers, it, you know, to the extent that the rhetorical texture was something that I appropriated from Auden, not from uh, Lowell, but what I got from Lowell was a desire to do something for my father that would kind of, you know, make him sort of heroic rather than take away those elements. Because, of course, you remember Lowell's father is a military man, you know. And he's sort of, the, the long arc of that memoir has to do with his being demilitarized in some way, you know, and, and, and it's a process of emasculation that's gone into in great, great, exquisite detail. And, uh, you know, and I think that was sort of the impulse. And in relationship to the Civil War, I mean, what really comes back to me about the Civil War, and when I was thinking about this coming down here on the train, I felt like, God, you know, it's sort of an eruption of the existential situation into history. You know, it can't really be contained by ideas of the Republic because it in and of itself, and I think that is something that my father understood about the, that war, that it was so big and huge, and, and all our responses to it are gonna be incommensurate. You know, I mean, I think Lowell really comes close to doing something, you know, I mean, and, but in relationship to what actually happened, what was actually going on, you know, on the battlefield, if we could ever reconstruct it in our minds, I mean, we are gonna be totally horrified. I mean, it's just a horrifying, you know. So, you know, the fact that, you know, at a certain point in the unfolding of violence itself, you know, the individual has to come to recognize, you know, I mean, uh, for me, the real, you know, I mean, there are lots of great Southern texts about the war, and the South has a wonderful literature about the war. You know, the Northern text that really means a lot to me is, of course, the Red Badge of Courage, you know. And, of course, Henry is completely confused in the Red Badge of Courage, if you remember it. And he, he runs away from the battle at the beginning. And then in the process of the book, he runs towards the battle, and he becomes a soldier. You know, but everything that's happening around him is confused, and there's no historicity to it. You don't really know what battle it is, you know, and uh, you don't really have a sense of people moving in historical space, but people moving in a kind of existential space. You know? And and Crane's poetry is like that too. He's a wonderful poet, you know? and. Uh, so that was sort of what I was thinking of in relationship to sort of all of the different ways you could approach it, you know, and, uh, you know. and I guess it's, in a sense, it's sort of what both of the poems that Frank and, and Kevin Red are doing too, they're kind of existentializing something historical. You know what I mean? Or am I going? Uh, quickly, um, for me, um, I guess what I took from Lowell and uh, it's interesting you talk about existentializing. I think of it as that mix of the personal and the public history that Lowell does so well in um, that poem. And I frankly love Notebook, his uh, sequence that I think imagines uh, that so well. And um, that's one of my favorite books of his um, because it is that mix, which I think is um, particular and peculiar. But I also wouldn't want us to forget that he's writing about seeing the Negro faces on the television rise like balloons. He's writing about another historical moment that is directly related to the Civil War and directly related to the Civil Rights Movement, and he's watching. And so there's this beautiful, to me it's an honest poem about putting your nose to the glass and not seeing 
and also seeing, you know, and not being able to do something, but also I, that to me is so powerful in the poem and it's so honest. Um, a poet I admire and have edited, John Berryman, for instance, wrote terribly about race in the same period and, you know, thought because he sort of used one form of sort of dialect and got away with it, he could write really bad poems about race, you know. Um, and so I, I think we can't forget that. And obviously, as an African-American poet sitting down the, to write this poem, there was a, Lowell was an example to be able to write about this complex thing and, in a personal way. And also, I have his middle name, I guess. So it, was, it seemed like lurking there. Um, but I, I, I guess I would hate to think that we're talking about the past only, because Lowell is not to me, and that's what's powerful about that poem. And as I recall, he read it at, I don't remember where he first read it. Public Garden, 1960. Yeah, and that public quality of the poem, too, I think is really important to the poem's, um, you know, vector, I mean, where it's going. And I, I guess, you know, to try to write a kind of short epic poem, <laughs> which is what it feels like, and you read it so well, honestly, I was just, it was a, Amazing to hear you read it because you got that sense of gravitas that he brings to the page, and um, you know I think the war deserves that, but I don't think it's impossible to write about it. I, I think it's necessary. Uh, let me say, I when I introduced the poem, I meant to mention that it was written just a couple of years after Little Rock, and uh, and so you know those the, the drained faces of Negro schoolchildren. He's talking about something the whole country had just experienced. And, and which is also to say that all the issues about the war were not over, you know. The monument sticks like a fishbone in the city's throat in a way that's almost the central lines in the, uh, in the poem. And, uh, and it's a fishbone that's not out. Uh, it's not out, it's still not out uh, in, in this country. Uh, it strikes me that, that all these are public texts and in some way you know, very personal at the same time. And, um, it, it it seems to me that it, it may be that the war has given you an opportunity to talk about your own Americanness, and I wonder if Kevin, you say something about that first. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's right. Um, it's hard to name it. I guess I I think the poem tries different ways of naming that the movie the scene. Uh, the idea of seeing things, or I, I think it's seed instead of seen, um, the spoken quality of the language um, that I think Lowell engages. And, and I think there's a way that Tate almost does that interests me, especially in those little um, couplets. That's what the part I love in that poem. I wish there were just little couplets, but. Um, Anyway, uh, so for me, there was exactly that Americanness. Um, but the other thing is an, ambigu amb an ambiguity about that whole process and where does one belong and what's the name of the damn war? Is it the war between the states, Southern independence? You know, there's too many names. And I think that idea of naming it was in there. And what I love about Lowell's poem is that ambiguity at the end, the savage servility, which is not so ambiguous, but it, it, isn't, it hasn't decided where we're going yet. Well, uh, I don't read enough. And um, uh, I have to admit, I had never read either Kevin's poem or Vijay's uh, uh, piece before uh, I prepared for this. And I have to say, I was amazed. Um, uh, for me, the, uh, the guts of being able to write a poem uh, called For the Confederate Dead was just astonishing. And the fact that he carries it off, um, I particularly love these lines. In my movie, there are no horses, no heroes, only draftees fleeing into the pines, some few who survive, gravely wounded, lying burrowed beneath the dead, silent until the enemy bayonets what is believed to be the last of the breathing. And that's really taking on the violence, the fact the materiality of, uh, of the war and absorbing it into the one's own writing. Uh, it's just quite terrific. Um, 
And when I read Vijay's uh, piece, I, I have to say, I kept thinking, I've never written anything this good about my father. <laughs> um, it's really amazing, um, uh, really quite profound. Um, so it's been an honor, been a pleasure to be a part Sweet. of this. Let's take a question. Go ahead. Thank, thank you all. I'm, I was really excited for this panel to be part of the program. I wouldn't want us to miss the greater moment <laughs> in which we are, uh, on which we, uh, on the cusp of which we are, uh, which is that we are about to enter into four years of remembering this civil war during the time when we will have a national election on our first African American president. And, uh, and in which some very right-wing reactionary political groups are already preparing the message for how America will understand the Civil War 150 years later. And so and, and my concern is I don't see enough of uh, the, the, the liberal arts stepping in to help shape that message. And I think the way that you framed it, perhaps, how does reflecting on the war give you a chance to talk about your Americanness, is a very good way that we can step publicly into the conversation that is just about to happen <laughs> and perhaps help lead a conversation that is one that heals rather than one that is bent on, on a deeper fracture, than the, a deeper fracture of good order than we are already experiencing. So that I just really want to encourage it because I think it is about to blow apart. And if we don't step up publicly with some sort of conversation about what the Civil War means now, we are going to be seeing much greater violence than we are already experiencing along rural and urban and uh, north and south and white and non-white lines. I, I definitely have something to say about this. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, okay, there is the unionist response, right, a more perfect union, and then, then there is the Fis of Paris tendency of America, which was first fully enacted in the Civil War and is continuing now, and has kind of returned, you know? You know, the ghosts of the past definitely have come back. You know, and one part of me feels that, well, if you are kind of thinking about a more perfect union as represented by the Obama presidency, for example, or progressive ideas, or kind of legislation that we all live under, like Roe versus Wade, yeah, and, uh, you know, you're kind of, you know, you're gonna sort of enact in some way or another now again the same historical circumstances, which we are enacting. I mean, this is so much about states' rights, right? The Tea Party and all of that stuff, and Arizona, and now they're trying to pass a law in Arizona that will allow people to bring guns on campus, you know? Yeah, think what would happen if Sarah Lawrence if somebody did that. I'm like, I'm terrified, you know? Like, you know, I mean, I'm going, oh my God, you know? But you know, but I think the issue is, well, this is America. It is schizoid in this way, you know, and that's what's interesting to me, you know. I want to, like other people say, well, we got to fight, and I always say, God, but it's so interesting, this. It's so long, it's enduring, it's the character of the country, and the republic is a schizoid republic, and it will always be that way. And isn't it hopeless to try to integrate and unify it? I mean, is it, would it ever be possible? I you mean, anti-integration, is that what you're well, saying? Well, no, I'm, you know. <laughs> You heard it here. But in the pro-segregation, this guy. No, in the Kleinian sense. I know, I'm, I'm talking see, I'm about, you know, I'm not talking, you know. Uh, my question is for Mr. Young about um, just how the Civil War fits into being an example of uh, sort of homicidal wistfulness <laughs> and, and, and being a, the problem of nostalgia yeah. and how that relates to when you're making a poem and how personal nostalgia influences that and kind of when you're connecting the personal with the historical, what sort of the uh, moral, the moral importance of that is or what you think about that. 
That's a great question about nostalgia and history and what your moral responsibility is. Um, I mean, I think nostalgia is such a powerful engine, you know. Um, I've been recently writing about soul music and that idea. But, um, you know, I think that uh, one has to be a little careful, but it's such a powerful both impulse in the South, I think. You know, it's very uh, much something that drives Southern public talking about it, um, or any country song you've ever heard that's on the radio right now. Um, but also, it's something personal you have to wrestle with. And I, I guess I see nostalgia sometimes as fighting against history and as a useful way, and then sometimes as a form of history, um, retelling it in a new way. So um, it's a big question I can't quite answer in the time allotted, but I think it's a great idea question. I think that's the time that we've got. Thank you all for coming, Thanks and thank you all so much. Thank you for tuning into the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please tune into our website at www.awpwriter.org.